0: Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. Okay, so in today's episode, we are going to be discussing um, elbow tendinopathies and distal bicep tears. So we haven't really discussed anything on the elbow yet, but we feel like this is one of the more common things, I think all of us probably see this quite a bit in our clinics. um, So we wanted to make sure that we discuss this a little bit. Um, Next week, we're going to be releasing an episode where we discuss uh, foot and ankle fractures. And that's actually going to be the last new episode that we are going to release for this testing cycle. Um, I know you guys are getting close. uh, For those of you taking the OCS here in March of 2020. So we're gonna kind of wrap it up for a little while, but we definitely want you guys to continue to email us questions if you have them. Um, I know some people have posted some questions in the Facebook group, the Medbridge Facebook group. So um if, if you guys still have questions, feel free to reach out to us um up to test date. We're we're more than happy to help. We just wanna make sure we're not uh continuing to release new things too close to the test so you guys are able to really focus on uh, what you need to review before the exam. So, Amanda, is there anything you want to add to that? No, I don't think so. Not necessarily. And I know that some of you are a little further from
1: testing than others. Um, I think some of you start testing in like two weeks, two and a half weeks, um, mm-hmm. something like that. So, you know, it's coming up. Stay calm. Um, but, yeah, if you have questions, please feel free to send them our way. I know a few people have asked for us to do some different episodes and stuff. Um, you know, we hear you. I think I've responded to most of those emails. I think Alexis and I really tried to hone in this year and the time that we had with what we thought was the most important, most relevant topics. So, you know, moving into next year's task after we take a little break, I think there'll be some different content coming out, but we tried to pick the stuff that was most relevant to the most number of people.
0: Yeah, definitely. So... um... Like I said, we're going to talk about elbow tendinopathies and distal bicep tears today. So these aren't the only elbow topics that I would encourage you to review, but uh, like I said, something we see in our clinics a lot. So we felt like it was important for us to do an episode on this. So um, if you're looking at the current concepts, they discuss elbow tendinopathies and distal bicep tears in the elbow monograph from pages 8 to 13. Um, So the first thing I want to talk about is non-neuromuscular conditions that can present in the elbow. So um, they talk about how cardiac and pulmonary systems are the majority of the referral symptoms that may encompass the elbow. Um, So if you look at table one, that's on page one of the monograph, um, that is the non-neuromusculoskeletal conditions. I would just encourage you to take a peek at that. Um, I know we did get some questions too about referred pain and It can be a little cumbersome. So I would try and break it down by different body region as you're studying and really make sure you're reviewing those. So that's a nice place to look for that and kind of review that chart. Um, The other thing to note is that an acute onset of non-traumatic swelling in the elbow can be due to septic arthritis. You know, this information, it's important during differential diagnosis, especially if you're working with a direct access patient. So if your patient is coming to you and they've got... um, you know, an acute onset of the non-traumatic swelling, then you're thinking about your septic arthritis, um, and you just want to make sure that the, the symptoms that you're seeing and the tests you're doing, that it's all adding up to make you think that it is musculoskeletal. So on table five, which spans across pages nine and 10, they talk about the physical examination um, for medial and lateral tendinopathies. So you should make note that many of these physical exam measures, they lack a high degree of diagnostic accuracy. So again, it's important that you, as a clinician, develop your own thorough diagnostic process and consider differential diagnosis for elbow pain. Um, so obviously, these things you can take them into consideration. They're not saying they're bad tests to do. It's just that there's not a ton of um, diagnostic accuracy with these. So you want to make sure that you're really looking at multiple different things. So there's subjective complaints, other objective things you're you're viewing. Um, and really making sure you're using a cluster of tests versus just saying, okay, um, you know, they had a positive, pass and pos- passive positioning test and calling it at that. Is there anything you want to add to that, Amanda, any specific tests that you really like to use or any opinions on that? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I mean they I just- think that chart's
1: pretty good.
0: Yeah, the chart is pretty good.
1: And I mean, like we've been saying all along, and I think one of the biggest take homes when you're talking about any kind of special testing at the point at which you're studying to be a certified specialist in orthopedics, you really just need to understand, like Alexis said, the diagnostic accuracy and what kind of weight those special tests are going to carry, what needs to be cluster tested and what has more
0: weight on its own. Right. Exactly. So, so when we're talking about elbow tendon pathologies, um, there's a lot to go with the nomenclature. So um, much about the conditions of tendons has been discovered, but there's still a lot that remains unknown and the pathophysiology and pain mechanism is not completely understood. So a lot of us still know, you know, use the terms or we'll see the terms lateral epicondylitis. Um, So epicondylosis and epicondylalgia have competed with the terms tendinitis, tendinosis, and tendinopathy. Um, And so all these terms have really come about because there is a lack of true understanding of what's going on with that tendon. Uh, So each term attempts to imply different stages of inflammation at the tissue level. Surgical interventions for epicondylitis indicated a lack of acute cellular changes associated with an inflammation response in the tissue. So currently the term tendinopathy is recognized as the accepted term, to indicate a condition in the tendon. Is there anything you want to add about inflammation or?
1: No, I don't think so. I I definitely use tendinopathy a lot more like when I'm documenting and stuff now than I ever used to Mm -hmm. understanding that's important.
0: Right. And and I don't know that it's really um, changing like in terms of patients and that sort of thing. And, And a lot of times the terms tennis elbow and golfer elbow, like those are still used quite a bit. Um, Which is fine, as long as you're explaining to your patient exactly what's going on um, and that there's probably, you know, not as much of the inflammation as we used to think was there. um, I I think it's important, you know, that you explain to a certain extent some of the um, what we do know is going on. But, you know, I think those are probably more what you'll hear more than anything else is the golfer elbow and tennis elbow.
1: Well, and if they've done any online searching, that's what they've come up with. Mm hmm. So they're going to ask you and a lot of times patients get them confused.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So as long as you understand how to explain it in a way that they're going to understand, I think that's what matters most. So, so we're talking about lateral tendinopathy. That is a lesion of the common extensor origin at the lateral epicondyle of the humerus. And lateral tendinopathy is more common than medial tendinopathy Uh, with an incidence of 1% to 3% of the general population and up to 15% for those in an at-risk profession, meaning that you're doing repetitive tasks um, or heavy work. So the patient presentation of lateral tendinopathy, you're going to see tenderness about a centimeter distal to the lateral epicondyle, painful gripping, painful stretching into wrist flexion, or pain with contraction of the wrist or finger extensors. Uh, Typically, you'll see this, and it's more common in females from 35 to 50 years old, more common in those with high levels of physical work, low social support at work, and strenuous jobs. And in terms of differential diagnosis for lateral tendinopathy, you want to look at cervical nerve root compression, so C6 to C7, radial tunnel syndrome, posterolateral rotary instability, compression of the posterior interosseous nerve, Intraarticular disease and injury to the lateral antibrachial nerve. Um, anything else you want to add to that, Amanda? No. Okay. Yeah, I think that so basically, um, you know, you want to make sure you're rolling out. And a lot of times, I mean, for me clinically, I think I generally see some sort of nerve involvement, even if I do think there's probably tendinopathy as well. I don't know if that's been your experience, but I generally see a little bit of both.
1: I would agree with that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, okay, so then medial tendinopathy, uh, the primary muscles involved include the pronator teres, the flexor carpi radialis, and the palmaris longus. Potential secondary areas of of involvement at, include the flexor carpi ulnaris and flexor sublimus. Um, less com- it's less common than lateral pain, as I mentioned before. And so they note in the current concepts that 9.8% to 20% of all epicondylar pain is medial. So a lot more common that you're going to see that lateral pain. Um, Patient presentation for medial is uh, equal between male and females, and it's more common in the dominant arm. There's some conflicting reports. Uh, Medial involvement seems to be associated with forceful work or overuse. And there's three common reasons um, why, and this is, again, in the current concepts, they note that three common reasons for medial um, tendinopathy. So the flexor pronator tissue fatigues due to repetitive stress, uh, sudden change in level of stress that predisposes the elbow to ligamentous injury, and failure of the ulnar collateral ligament to consistently and sufficiently stabilize valgus forces. So your differential diagnosis for this is going to be cervical spine nerve root compression, and you're looking at C7, C8, and T1, thoracic outlet syndrome, musculoskeletal conditions of the shoulder, ulnar nerve injury, and medial elbow ligamentous instability. Uh, they do note also in the current concepts that identification of the of ulnar neuritis is important um, because if there's going to be surgery for medial elbow tendinopathy, um, doing a cervical I'm sorry, a surgical nerve decompression at the time of the surgical intervention for the medial elbow tendinopathy may significantly improve outcomes. Um, so that's really all of the basic information on medial tendinopathy. Anything that you want to add that you see a lot with that?
1: No, not necessarily. I mean, like you said, too. I mean, I really see a lot more lateral than I, I do too. Feel. Yeah. Probably at the ratio of 10 to one, I had to mm-hmm. guess. Um, yeah. And a lot of times if I see somebody with medial, they also have had some experience with lateral. It may not be as acute, but they'll tell me, oh, my, the other side used to hurt. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yep. So um, non-operative management for elbow tendinopathy. Um, Current evidence does not support a specific plan to address elbow tendinopathies. Um, So really the plan of care should be individualized based on your assessment of the, the patient in front of you. Um, it's really important to treat the underlying cause. So a comprehensive plan will address pain and tissue healing, uh, but clinicians also need to assess posture and analyze movement in the entire kinetic chain to assess the mechanical forces at the elbow. Um, so in these patients, it's really important to build scapular stability and as well as work on strength and flexibility throughout the shoulder, elbow, wrist, and fingers. Um They note that mobilization techniques and joint manipulation at the elbow have demonstrated improved pain thresholds and grip strength. I'm sure this is something that we've all seen a lot of. So eccentric exercise has now become a standard prescription for tendinopathies for any region. Um, But research-wise, it's actually unclear if eccentric exercise is appropriate for any and all tendinopathies or if it's primarily effective for the Achilles tendon. But I definitely, I tend to apply it and I see it a lot applied to the elbow. I don't know if that's something that you see.
1: Yes, I I do. It seems to work. You know, I Mm -hmm. I know what the research says
0: and that it's not
1: 100% where we want it to be. I mean, I think this kind of was extrapolated to include a lot of things, but anecdotally, I would say that it it works and I would agree. It's pretty much a standard of care at this point.
0: Yeah. So if you look at table six in your current concepts book, um, it's on page 12 they discuss non-operative management of elbow tendinopathies um, and what the recommendations are. So they cover quite a few different things there. And like I mentioned, all in all, there's not a specific um, plan of care that's recommended, but there are certain things that have more evidence than others. And again, you really need to make sure you're looking at the person in front of you and what are their goals? um, What do they want to get back to? What daily stressors are they putting on their elbow? Um, And again, I think the most important thing, you know, what's going on at the shoulder and what's going on at the wrist and hand, Um, just like the knee joint, you want to make sure that you're looking at the hip and the foot. Um, It's the same kind of idea. So we want to make sure that we're addressing the entire kinetic chain if we're going to get to that root cause of why did this tendinopathy begin in the first place. Um, so with operative management, um it's indicated in patients whose c- symptoms and functional limitations do not resolve with multiple cortisone injections or re- rehabilitation, um, if they experience constant pain or if they have associated intraarticular pathology. I'm not going to get too much into this. They do note um, that there's three different types of surgical approaches. So there's open, percutaneous, and arthroscopic, um, and rehab after surgery lacks evidence-based follow-up. Um, it depends on the type of surgery, the surgeon preference and the patient goals. So if you're seeing these patients after they've had surgery, you just want to make sure you're following whatever that specific surgeon, um, is recommending or what their protocol is. And you mentioned, you see some of these post-operatively, Amanda,
1: I do a little bit. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, and you probably just follow surgeon protocol depending Mm -hmm. on the surgeon. Yeah. So um, they don't offer any sort of even really generalization about it. So that's really it in terms of tendinopathy. I do think it's something, like I mentioned, we see quite a bit. Um, I generally see it in people. There's usually something else going on too, Um, but definitely more lateral than medial. Um, And that's really what, that kind of is across the board is way more common laterally than medially. And, um, just making sure you're treating the entire patient. So anything else you want to add to tendinopathies in general?
1: No, not necessarily. I, just the one thing I will say, though, is just make sure you're doing a good cervical spine screening on these people. Mm-hmm. Um, all too often I get referrals for, I get a lot for lateral epicondylitis, but a lot for just elbow pain mm-hmm. or arm pain. Mm-hmm. And then if you ask them where their elbow pain is, the reality is, oh, uh, it kind of runs proximally distal to that. And if you do a little further screening, it's really coming from their neck. So like you said, of treating the whole patient, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times it is lateral epicondylitis or... Um, tendinopathy type issues, but just making sure that you're truly screening that
0: (laughs) not missing the neck. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do your full upper extremity screening on these folks. Okay. So we are going to talk just a little bit about distal biceps tendon ruptures. So overall, this is a less common injury in the elbow region than your tendinopathies, um, but they do happen. It occurs greatest in males ages between the ages of 40 and 60 Um, And in younger groups, the most common demographic is weightlifters and bodybuilders. Uh, The mechanism of injury is a rapid eccentric contraction of the biceps in response to a load into extension with the elbow and forearm in supination and flexion. Partial ruptures of the distal biceps are rare um, due to the failure occurring at the insertion site of the biceps and not within the musculotendinous junction. So most of the time you will see a full rupture of the distal bicep. It's theorized that uh, changes in the tissues predispose the area to injury, including degenerative changes, hypertrophy, spurring of the bicipital tuberosity, and changes in the cubital bursa. The use of anabolic steroids and smoking have also been cited as risk factors. So patient presentation, um, you'll find a subjective report of a pop at the time of injury with acute onset of weakness. It's rare that there are preceding symptoms. Uh, In the acute phase, the clinician will find tenderness over the biceps tendon and tuberosity, ecchymosis in the antecubital fossa, and deformity at the biceps insertion. Defect may be difficult to appreciate if the bicipital aponeurosis is intact. Uh, The patient will demonstrate weakness and or pain with elbow flexion and supination, And inadequate migration of the bicep can be observed during these motions. So if you're watching them as they're going through those motions, the bicep muscle is just not going to look quite right. Um, So if you look at Table 7 on page 14, they talk a little bit more about um, physical examination for bicep ruptures. Is there anything you want to add? Is this something you've seen much of?
1: Um, I've seen them post-operatively, mm-hmm. several cases of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say that I don't see a lot pre-op, um, but I will say when I do see them post up they've been able to express a pretty clear mechanism of injury. They describe a really typical, like, bruising and bleeding pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's pretty clear when it is. I mean, sure, they have to go through the hoops, they get an MRI, they have a repair, that kind of a thing. But... It- I mean, I don't really see them conservatively all that
0: much. Yeah. I mean, I've had one person who not too long ago did this. I think I told you about this. And uh, I, he was doing something very silly and tore his bicep. And um, he came to see me just to like confirm what he thought probably happened. And I was like, "I'm yeah, there's nothing I can do. You need to go get an MRI and, right. and have surgery. So I didn't actually treat him. He was just a friend that I got to see it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I well, will say surgery.
1: the people that I've only ever seen this in, whether that just be my limited experience with them or part of it's just because of the population they occur in, they're generally younger males mm-hmm. um, and they usually are surgical candidates and usually have surgery because what they want to get back to doing is pretty high level. So exactly. I, I think you will, if you see bicep ruptures, it will mostly be in the post-operative phase. Now, that being said, you need to have a good awareness of your post-operative treatment timelines, your tissue healing timelines, all of that, because it's Mm -hmm. usually a very specific protocol.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, honestly, in the current concepts, they don't even talk about non-operative management. I just don't think that's really something we consider very often with this, unless if it's someone who, for whatever reason,
1: isn't a surgical candidate, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But for the most part, you're going to see these people post-op unless if, and again, you know, for me, it was like a friend, he was at a gym nearby. He just wanted me to look at it and confirm what he was probably thinking happened to him. So you might be in that direct access situation where, but they're going to feel that pop there. There's a specific mechanism of injury. So you can guide these people to the right provider.
1: I've never had one of them tell me they didn't feel this dramatic pop.
0: No. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty specific mechanism and a pretty specific complaint. So, Um, so with operative management, one thing that they do know that's important with this is you want to have prompt operative management. So a surgical delay of less than 10 days is the treatment of choice. So if these people are, if it's, Someone you know or somebody ends up in your clinic direct access somehow with this problem, um, you want to encourage them to get into the surgeon as soon as possible because it is important that they have surgery right away. Um, Surgery is minimally invasive, but it may require tissue grafts if surgery is delayed, and they typically will use the semitendinosis or the palmaris longus. Um, rehabilitation is surgeon guided. So, um, in general, you want to try to get them to full range of motion around four weeks, begin strengthening between six and eight weeks. And then typically they'll be, um, at unrestricted activity between eight and 16 weeks. Um, there has been unsupervised PT that's been documented for patients that don't have any pre or post-op complications and the low demands in work and recreation, um, but as you mentioned, you know most of the people that I've seen or that we see in the clinic with this, they're usually active, um, and they want to get back to either higher work demands or higher recreational demands, and so they're going to be good um, candidates for rehab in that perspective. Um, and for most patients that have a distal bicep repair, satisfaction's high. Um, and there's a low risk of re-rupture. I think they know in the current concepts, like within the first three weeks is the highest risk, but the incident incidence is still very low. Um, so most of these patients do very well with this surgery. I know uh, my friend that ended up having his elbow operated on or, and having that distal bicep reattached, he is back to pretty much doing whatever he wants to do. He did great with it.
1: Yeah, I've had really good outcomes with it. The first, mm-hmm. the first month, I would say, is the most... Um, important. And I think that's where your patient education comes in. Mm-hmm. A lot of these people are young, active and healthy, and they kind of are going to push that boundary. A lot of them. Yes, absolutely. Um, all the surgeons I've worked with that have, that do this repair, put them in like a range locking brace afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a, an adjustable brace and patients are smart. And I've had multiple patients figure out how to change the settings on that yep. um, to you know, elongate the tissue a little bit more. And I tell them it's set at this range because that's where the tissue needs to be relaxed enough to heal. Um, so just educating them that the first, you know, tough it out for the first month, they know it's frustrating, but your recovery after this will be much better.
0: Right. And, you know, they keep those braces locked in that, um, you know, sometimes it's like 90 degrees of flexion or whatever, mm-hmm. um, or less than that. And, you know, having that conversation too, of like, don't pick something up with that arm just cause you have that brace on. <laughs> right. Right. Because right. a lot of times it is their dominant arm. So they're going to, you know, naturally want to use that and they have good use of their wrist and hand in those braces and they'll forget and they'll try and pick something up. So reminding them that it's and if, important. It's,
1: if it's not positioned properly, if the hinge does not fall right at their elbow and just like those braces fit at the knee, they don't always yeah. fit hundred percent correctly. So I educate them like the hinge needs to be right at your elbow. Like I've seen multiple patients come in where it's not positioned right and they can flex and extend their elbow almost right through it. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have the, the straps tight enough or yeah, it's, you just really have to educate them or they take it off to get dressed and then they get distracted and soon they're doing five other things before they got around to putting it back on. Right. So just educating them on what the role of the brace is, is, yeah. is really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So... um so yeah, anything else you want to add on distal bicep tears? I mean, they're pretty straightforward. Yeah, and they're
1: straightforward.
0: Just like anything else, like the surgeons do definitely have pretty specific protocols. I actually had looked quite a few up and there are a lot that are pretty, they're close to, I mean, there's not a ton of variability between them, but they're pretty specific on what they want them doing and not doing. Um, and so make sure that you're well aware in that if you have a patient come in, and you don't have their surgeon's uh, protocol. That you make sure you reach out and get that. Yeah. All right. So that's just a little bit of elbow stuff. Hopefully, that will be helpful for you guys as you're wrapping up your studying for this year's test. Um, I am going to link a couple MedBridge um, MedBridge courses in the show notes today. Um, so. There is one that is in the actual like OCS um, prep area of MedBridge, but then there's a couple other good elbow courses that I'll link in there as well. Sure. Yeah. So
1: up next will be foot fractures.
0: Yep. So keep, keep sending us your questions and we'll keep getting back to you and um, good luck with the rest of your studying. Bye. Thanks. Bye.